0: At times on this show we talk about investments and investment performance. Investment returns are not guaranteed and past performance does not guarantee future results. And welcome back to McNamara on Money. My name is Justin McNamara alongside Alyssa McNamara Reed and we are talking investment products today. All right, we've covered we've <laughs> we covered have an hour two we, of what 20 hour on the go, <laughs> and we covered individual stocks and individual bonds. So the the good news is that, you know, stocks and bonds do make up a huge a huge part of the global investment market and so a lot of the a lot of the products that we're going to talk about down the line here will also will be components of other investment products right it's probably appropriate that we spend some time on the on the specifics of individual stocks individual bonds and now we can you can go a bit quicker through the rest of this list yeah. i mentioned before the break that i wanted to jump into preferred stock and convertible bonds which are both sort of hybrid-ish securities and i think i'll probably just start at, at the top with preferred stock preferred stock is an ownership stake in a company but it comes with some bond like characteristics which is yeah. generally speaking again these are these can vary company by company i'll be generalizing a bit here you they tend to come with a fixed Dividend rate, like an interest rate in a bond, where maybe you're yeah. going to get a seven percent dividend every year, and we can't pay any, we can't pay dividends to the common stockholders until the preferred stockholders get all their dividends, which is okay. bond-like in its nature. Yeah, and then a preferred stock is also comes before a common stock in the result of a bankruptcy, right? So if the whole company has to be liquidated, first you pay off all your all your bondholders who have actual bonds and have guarantees written into their contracts, and then if there's money left over, it goes. To the preferred stockholders. And then if there's even if there's money left over after that, then you know, then your common stockholders get their money back. The price you pay to own a common stock is the the is potentially you lose all your money or most of your money. Whereas, and you trade that off for the upside of potentially unlimited upside if your company grows like crazy, right? But a preferred stock essentially doesn't really have the appreciation potential, right? There's no voting rights with a preferred stock usually. And so there's no say in corporate governance. But again, it's, Mm. again, it's, there's bond like. And again, it's a fairly small marketplace, right? There's, I think there's only 15 ETFs that invest in preferred stocks right now. The biggest one I think is like thirteen billion dollars. It's a very small market, and it's again not particularly. It's just, it's it's just not all companies.
1: Not all companies issue preferred stock either. Yeah, it's small, it's fairly yeah.
0: niche, right? So yeah, I mean, you're for whatever reason, there there are lots of companies who probably just will do like, though, hey, the, this is a plain vanilla. I'm going to have common stock, and I'm going to issue bonds. And there are other reasons why you may want to to. To raise money using a preferred stock offering, which is certainly at their discretion, but again, just based on the size of the market, clearly not as as large. Again, if it's one point two trillion globally as the marketplace, that's much smaller than the yeah. U.S. stock market, right? Oh yeah, about a twentieth the size of it, based on yeah, the numbers
1: there, so. yeah, if, if not more, yeah, if not smaller, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll go
0: into yeah, in a convertible bond. Right. So a convertible bond, it's another hybrid British security, as the name suggests. Right. You get a fixed interest. Right. So a company will issue a a convertible bond. It's going to come with its interest payment. Right. You're going to you're going to get your interest payment. You're going to get your money back at some point in the future. However, there'll be either a period or a series of periods at which time the holder of the bond can convert into the common stock of the underlying of the underlying company. And so it's us. it's generally speaking it's used for it might be a smaller company where hey they don't want to they don't want to offer just more stock to the marketplace right because if, if you just mm. issue stock that dilutes the existing shareholders the shareholders that mm. but they also want to raise some money and you may get a, a better interest rate on your bonds if the investor in it has the potential to to participate in your appreciation maybe i want to issue a bond and i'd have to pay eight percent in the marketplace because i'm a little company but if i issue a convertible bond maybe i can get a better interest rate so my my debt service on an ongoing basis goes down and people will accept less of a rate of return on the bond side if they get potential upside with the ability to convert into into stock shares at a given time if if things go well and we and if the market goes crazy and everyone loves our product and all of a sudden they get to they get to get rich because they can convert their bond into a stock
1: Hmm. for no cost for no cost yeah, yeah okay okay
0: so essentially, what you get is it's it's like it's stock market it's, it's stock like it's potentially stock upside with bond downside. It, it doesn't always work that way. It's which is why I think the comp- not all companies issue them because they can maybe do better if they don't have to issue them. They probably don't, and that's probably why they're not all that. They're not common. That common. Yeah, six hundred and sixty okay. billion is the global market cap for convertible bonds. Really not ever, not everyone's doing it. You, you just tend to see it with smaller companies. Or maybe trying to get a deal on their debt financing. Okay. Um, again, they they'll fluctuate along with the price of the underlying stock, right? So if you're if you if your bond is worth a lot more than what you could convert the stock at, your the product will trade more like a bond. But as the price appreciates in the stock and it gets closer to being worth close to being worth more than the actual bond is worth, then your convertible bond may go up in value. And if the stock does great, you you all of a sudden it starts to trade like the underlying stock. Of the company so it's a again very very niche i think i I did only find i think i only i just did an etf search i'm sure there's more mutual funds but i only found one preferred stock etf listed oh, wow so it's, again it's a pretty oh, wow yeah <laughs> pretty small and pretty niche i think i'll spend too much more time on it but it is the kind of thing you do like any other investment product there are just there, there are times when for whatever reason they and it's usually after the, an asset class is done particularly well right there there's been times in our career when Oh, all of a sudden everyone's talking about convertible bonds because whatever they had a great year and or so now it's oh they're up thirty percent and it becomes a thing as an asset class and then okay. something else happens and they come back to earth or there's another hot investment. So that they these will come up from time to time. Again, certainly not a core holding for most folks, but it is something that you can invest in if you are so inclined. Should okay. I move on? Yeah, please. <laughs> Don't want to get too boring. All right, let's get into mutual funds and ETFs. These ones, I think now we're into something that probably I would say maybe our average investor is invested in. A mutual fund is a product, it's a wrap investment product where a bunch of people get together and they buy shares and they hire professional management to go invest in something, whether that's stocks, whether it's bonds, whether it's real estate, the mutual fund is just the wrapper into which Uh people buy the market dominates the 401k marketplace. So if you have a 401k, you almost certainly have a mutual fund in it. I will go, I'll go into some of the trading, right. They trade once per day at four o'clock. Um, I think, you know, different from
1: stocks, which trade all throughout the day, as many people know, in ETFs.
0: That's right. Yeah. On a stock exchange, you can buy and sell a stock anytime given the day. A mutual fund is offered from the mutual fund company. So if you buy a Fidelity mutual fund, you buy it from Fidelity and they give you your shares. At the end of the day, for the end for the price of that underlying of the underlying securities at the end of that day, okay. From a cost point of view, I would say mutual funds have a, have a wide variety of costs. Yeah. It really boils down to what your what the underlying investment strategy is, what the marketplace is, and how hard it is to manage that strategy, and how and frankly, this supply and demand. Relationship between the managers, and if you have a if you have a manager who's very in demand, they can charge a premium price. Whereas it's not necessarily the case if you have a manager who's not as well known and not as desirable. So you can get mutual funds that are a couple of percent per year in management fees yeah. if they're if they're investing in markets that are very difficult to do research in, and maybe smaller mm-hmm. niche markets that that aren't. Or yeah, hedge
1: fund yeah, type sure. funds are, could be closer to 2% per year for non-traditional investment strategies. Like yeah, and I,
0: yeah. j- I'll just use an example of, we, we spoke a bit about managed futures in the in, in the first, what was that our first? I first think our segment, first we were second, talking about second, equities, yeah. I think, yeah. But so, yeah, that, that's a very small market. And a managed future is just so uh, they're trading futures contracts. It's fairly labor intensive, right? Cause there's, they're doing a lot of buying and selling. And it's also a very small marketplace overall. Mm. You don't get the mm-hmm. opportunity to spread the cost out. If you're, if you're managing a big, let's just say a big Vanguard mutual fund that's invests in large cap stocks, you may have 50 or a hundred billion dollars invested in it. That's a lot of, that's a big asset base over which to spread your cost. Whereas if you're in a kind of very, a smaller niche market, then you maybe you only have two billion dollars in your fund and but you have a similar or maybe even a higher cost structure because you need to be doing even more research. You need to be hiring your mathematicians or whatever you're doing. And so you get a very wide range. Right. And it just really depends on the individual fund that you're buying, which is why we're always telling folks, please make sure you know what you're paying for your funds. No
1: one knows that. (laughs) (laughs) No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard for people to find that out too, because it's not on your statements. It's not on, you right. can't log into the website and find it. It's in the prospectuses or the annual reports that people just normally throw in the trash. And some people right. don't even get them in the mail anymore. Sometimes they come electronically and people don't read them. So it's, nobody knows that it's hard. And I think that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah. I, I would I think that the it's most people know it in the because the financial press is, is more or less pushes people to lower cost investments, which I think is the right thing to do. So you've had Fidelity, Vanguard, American funds all have really grown in recent years because they tend to be lower cost shops and so they tend to get a good a good reputation in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I absolutely know what you're paying for. But again, we own some mutual funds that are very low cost, right? If you're in an index fund, right? It's and it's a big index like the S&P 500, you shouldn't pay a whole heck of a lot of money for that. That should be a very low cost investment, but we also own funds that are more expensive because that's just you want the most cost effective option that you can get, but that's if you want a particular investment in a particular marketplace that just happens to be expensive. It's not necessarily a bad thing if you're paying a percent for your management fee of your mutual fund, depending on what the other options are, right?
1: It seems to me, I don't know if you have ranges, but it seems to me like, I found some statistics, but yeah, when I look at, so not index funds, but like actively managed mutual funds, it seems to me like an the range about now is between half a percent per year and like 1% per year, or a little bit less than a percent per year. Yep. And like you said, some of the more hedge fundy type mutual funds could be upwards of 2% per year, but that's not common. I found some information indicating that the average mutual fund expense right now for an actively managed fund is about seven tenths of a percent. Okay. And I, that, that has come down. I've noticed over my career, the 20-ish years that, costs have come down and actively managed mutual funds quite a bit. It used to be like 1% was pretty standard. Yeah. And 20 yeah. to 30 years ago, that was the case. And they've come down a little bit. Overall costs por- for portfolios have come down a lot because of the introduction of ETFs and mutual funds, excuse me, and index funds. But for actively managed funds, I, those costs have even come down a little bit.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And again, it's the kind of thing where I just make sure that your cost structure for your fund works for two investment peers. Right. If I'm talking about a large company, an S&P, let's just say a if your chosen investment asset class is like a is a dividend based investment strategy. Right. The U.S large large company dividend payers that universe is fairly small right there there may be like 200 companies and so manager right and you're also you tend to have a lot of assets in that asset class so you're asking a manager oh you're gonna you're gonna keep your eye on these 200 companies and you're also going to have an asset base that's going to be 25 billion dollars or more that's you should expect that to be a relatively conservative relatively lower cost strategy Uh whereas if you're if your chosen investment strategy is Bro cap stocks, right? There, there may be hundreds, or let's just say small-cap stocks. There may be thousands of very small U.S. companies, and they're just a lot harder to research, right? Yeah. It's not like analysts yeah. like cover these tiny little companies like crazy. If the yeah. market cap of your, of your company is like $5 billion, there's not a lot of maybe publicly available research out there. Okay. So you're out there, boots on the ground, traveling all around the country and meeting management teams, right? That's an expensive way to do it. And so you would tend to see a more expensive fund. So again, it's not just lower is better. It's relatively lower is better compared to the rest of your asset class. So just pay attention to it. Like in our business makes everything hard to find as far as costs go, unfortunately, but it's just the way it is.
1: Which is why I like to be very upfront with people about costs, especially at the beginning of a relationship (laughs) to make sure they understand. i like, I only want to work with people that understand the cost and want to work with me because they see value in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that should be the case for everyone. Investment professionals can very easily get cost information to investors. And if they can't, that's a red flag. It's hard for right. the, an individual investor to like look for that online, for example. That's just, it's not easily available, but it's very easy for investment professionals with a few clicks to, 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 to give that information to their client. Yeah. It should, if you have an investment prof- professional to ask, certainly do so you understand the cost and you're just more informed
0: yeah i'm going to talk a little bit about there's a topical element to mutual funds here so i wanted to cover a bit of the a bit more on the cost structure and i'm going to start to mutual funds i feel like you almost have to talk them about them now in in comparing and contrasting them with etfs or exchange traded funds yeah so the way a mutual fund works this one is for for tax purposes mutual funds have to pay out their capital gains to their shareholders all right etfs do also but there's a, there's a big but there but so a mutual fund if you know inside of if you buy a mutual fund for $10 a share and you sell it for $12 a share you have to pay a capital gain on that $2 right just, just like you bought a stock or a stock or a bond that appreciated right you have to pay capital gains on your appreciation mutual funds have a second layer of that which is that the inside of the ass inside of the fund wrapper, they're also buying and selling their stocks or bonds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if they have net gains for the year, they have to pay out those capital gains mm-hmm. to shareholders. It just happens to be timely right now because this is basically when, you know, between now and and going back maybe to 1115 to is when you see almost all of the mutual fund capital gains paid out. And it just tends to happen that if you have any active mutual funds and you're in a taxable account, I would just keep an eye on your accounts this year. You just tend to see at the end of a bear market, at the end of a bull market in like 10, last year, yeah, like last year, which had huge it ended.
1: capital gains at the end of last year and a lot of yeah. stock funds. Yeah.
0: And they also tend to lag because what happens at the beginning of a bear market is that some of the shareholders are going to bail out. And in order to raise the funds. To send the shareholders there the managers have to go sell some stuff so there's tends to be even more selling as you enter a bear market so at the end of a bull market you get capital gains coming out and there tends to be a big rush in in the first year of a bear market. So if you're if you own mutual funds in a taxable account, just be careful. Hopefully you've been grabbing tax losses where you can this year, like we do for our clients. It's not the kind of thing that you can control, and you don't you generally don't know about it. They make estimates over the course of the year, but it's you know, most people yeah. aren't have to be checking the website online to know exactly where you're going to be at. And so just I and would there's just, not much just you a, can
1: do to avoid it other than if you were able to get losses earlier in the year when the market right. was down in October, for example example or whatever yeah
0: that's right yeah. That's, which is why we're taking losses for clients because again because of that uncertainty in, at the beginning in March we didn't know we, we couldn't predict what the capital gain situation is for clients who have actively managed mutual funds but if we grab a loss when we can it protects us a little bit against the unknown of, of the whole thing and it, it's again it's a difficult situation because if you own a long term if you have a long-term active holding in a mutual fund that you've held on the way up in a bull market, selling it is also a tax problem, right? So you, I can get rid of this investment and I can go to a more tax efficient ETF, but if in order to get rid of it, I may have to pay a huge capital gain. And yeah. so I don't sell it, but then because I held it, I may have to pay not quite as large capital gain, but still an, you know, kind of an unknown gain that comes your way. So come tax time, I would just prepare yourself. If you're inactively managed funds this year, they are coming out fairly fairly high. high. I can promise they'll be higher than you want them to be. How about that? We'll put it that way.
1: Yeah. I think they'll be, they, but not higher than last year. I can't imagine they'd be higher than last year. I, do you think?
0: I didn't, do, I, of I, I, I didn't yeah. do comps, but when, when I ran some numbers, some of them were 5, 10, even and higher percent of the actual, they'll distribute, they report it as a percentage of yeah. the fund value, right? Like 5% of the shares are going to be kicked out as a long-term capital gain and 1% as a short-term capital gain, so like five percent of your value is turned into a capital gain. I saw some, depending on the fund, that were as high as fifteen, you know, fifteen or twenty percent. But again, that de- it really depends on the underlying fund that you're in and what the right. asset class was and how frequently people are trading that that right. particular fund. So I would is it gonna be as high as next year? I don't know, but I wouldn't it's not gonna be a, a light year for most folks, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Well, let's see. How many minutes do we have? I'm gonna, I, we can get ETFs in here, right? I hope.
1: Maybe not. We have th- three minutes before the break. Man. Yeah. It so can be long-winded, not just you, but we can be long-winded when we're talking yeah. about stuff that's fun. We are t- yeah, we're, and, yeah. we're
0: hitting the big ones and the most important ones yeah. together. So the next uh, I'll start the comparison with ETFs because it's, again, there is a there is a contrast. Uh, ETFs are now more popular. I think they're beating mutual funds with, I think, with inflows now. Uh, uh, but the ETF market again, an ETF is like a mutual fund. It's a it's a product where people are pooling their money. It's a pooled investment vehicle, and they're buying something, whether it's stocks or bonds or real estate, whatever whatever the underlying investment is. ETFs trade like a stock on an exchange. So you can buy them or sell them at any time during the day. The market for ETFs is like 5 trillion now in in the US and mutual fund market is about 27 trillion.
1: Oh, okay. So
0: there's certainly, it's still relatively small, but it's growing, but it's percentage-wise, it's growing very fast. The primary driver for it is the cost cost structure of an ETF is better than a mutual fund virtually across the board, right? You get the, I think the you get lower underlying costs because an ETF doesn't have to keep track of all of its shareholders, right? A mutual fund company has this gigantic list of shareholders. They know who owns all the shares. Either the mutual fund company knows or the brokerage company knows. So you just get a more expensive administrative process in a mutual fund. Um, Most ETFs are track indexes. So you get lower management fees, generally speaking, when you compare the ETF universe. And importantly, for this particular discussion on taxes, ETFs are more tax efficient than mutual funds just by virtue of how the pro- by virtue of how the product works, how shares are created and redeemed. It, there's a little loophole that allows the companies to get rid of the lower basis stock and kind of just disappear it, whereas a mutual fund doesn't have the same ability to do that. And so what you get is a more tax-efficient vehicle. We have a lot of folks who have had mutual funds for a long time because back when we started working, that was all that was available. E- ETFs are a newer product. And so we have folks who have both actively managed mutual funds in taxable accounts and ETFs in taxable accounts. And it's not even close with regard to the the, the tax efficiency. Most ETFs don't pay... I would say that's a generalization. I don't we've never dealt with someone calling us and saying, Hey man, my this ETF paid out a huge capital gain this year. What's up with that? And it's just not a thing that that, that happens because of the way the process works. So much more tax efficient. Looks like we gotta wrap it. My name is Justin McNamara, alongside Alyssa McNamara for Reed. This is McNamara on money and we will be right back. Ho, ho, ho. And welcome back. To McNamara on Money. My name is Justin McNamara, alongside Alyssa McNamara Reed, and we are talking investment products today. And as we talk, I'm worried that uh, people are waiting for the fun and uncommon investment products, and we've made them wait all this way through the show. So I think (laughs) we've—I
1: don't even think most people know what those uncommon (laughs) investment products are. So I wouldn't worry about it. I think Uh, think ETFs is a good one to spend some time on. They're so popular; not everyone hears that they should own them. They've grown in popularity, sort of a buzzword in the industry right now. So I think this is a good one to spend some time. I'm on
0: yeah 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 i think yeah people think that the right m- most people's opinions nowadays are shaped by the financial media yeah. and the financial media is big into etfs and i think there's there's a reason for it i mm-hmm. think like, the hidden reason is because cost is probably the, is probably the uh, I don't know it's statistically speaking it's the most important driver of the return of your investment right is is like uh, how much you paid for it and so ETFs just tend to be lower cost, right? They're, they tend to be in index funds, as we mentioned. They're more tax efficient, as we mentioned. And the management fee, even like apples to apples, the management fees tend to be lower because there's there's fewer administrative fees. If you hear you should own ETFs, it's probably generally true right you know a a bunch a good portion of our investments go into etfs i'd say certainly more than half it doesn't if you don't own any etfs you can certainly own a diversified portfolio of mutual funds without if you don't own one it's not the end of the world but you can build yourself a very good investment portfolio that's diversified and low cost in mutual funds you don't necessarily need to use an etf but in in general i'd say there are there, there are a great investment product and are gaining in popularity for good reason. Yeah.
1: I can't tell you how many times my existing clients have walked into a meeting and we're going through <laughs> stuff and they're like, hey, do I have some ETFs on my portfolio? Should yeah. I have some ETFs? Yeah. Do I have some ETFs? And I'm like, yeah, you do. Don't worry about and it. And they're like, said, okay, me? yeah, I'm good. I read that I should like have some all of
0: all of your, yeah. 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 <laughs> some Actually, of our clients have all ETFs. Primarily,
1: yeah. that's what you have. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, okay, I'm
0: good. So yeah, I guess I'm trying to think if we want to cover – more on ETFs right just
1: reiterate the tax efficiency of ETFs versus okay. mutual funds again that i think that's a complicated one but one that's good information to get out there
0: yeah again we you just our we have some basic investment portfolios not basic and basic is definitely the wrong word it's more generic recommendations for folks so for the our average preferred, person, preferred right, right. Portfolios, yeah person if you're worried about taxes and you want to be tax efficient inside of a portfolio, you probably want to have at least a bunch of your money inside of ETFs because they are more tax efficient. They they do, ETFs can and do pay out capital gains at the end of the year. But the reason that they're more tax efficient is because ETFs or ETF shares are not issued buy from a, you know, like a mutual fund company, right? I'm going to, I'm going to go uh, get set up with Fidelity. I'm going to give Fidelity my $50,000 and they're going to give me the equivalent value of shares of the Fidelity. I don't know. Name your fund of Fidelity Magellan fund. I don't even know if that's still around. Did they close that one? Anyway, I'm don't know. i dating myself a little bit with Fidelity Magellan. I was going to say anyway. Contra
1: fund. Contra fund. <laughs> <Contrafund>. Is that one <laughs> name is still that's around?
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Contra fund <laughs> is still around. Okay. So they're going to give me $50,000 worth of Fidelity Contra fund. And that's like they're issuing all the shares and giving them to me, and then when I re- when I sell my contra fund shares, they're going to take them back. So essentially, it's a direct trade with Fidelity when I'm buying and selling my mutual fund shares, right? An ETF doesn't work the same way. An et when you know ETFs trade like a stock. So if someone lists their their five hundred shares of the iShares Core S and P five hundred ETF. I can go buy those exact same shares, right? So they're selling them to me and we're doing a direct transaction through a broker dealer and and those can trade back and forth, right? However, when supply, when supply, when demand outstrips supply, right? New shares of an ETF can be created by like an investment bank or a market maker. So they might take all these, I'm gonna take all these stocks, right? The ETF companies say, you can create new shares and we'll create new shares for you but you just got to give me this list of stocks right here's my here's my list and you can give me all those stocks and i'll give you the shares then you can sell them to your client and so in the same works the opposite way where they shares are are destroyed right we'll you know, you, we'll take the shares back we'll give you these individual holdings and it, the shares will disappear that way so it's a different process when you're at when you're adding ETF shares and they just they allow in that process they are allowed to get rid of the lower basis stock right so if you're buying and selling individual stocks and you bought some shares of tesla you know, i don't really, i don't know the price of tesla so i'm always anytime i'm talking individual stocks I, I get lost in my price but i brought my tesla at $50 and then i bought some at $75 and i bought some at $100 and i bought some at 150 if i'm going to destroy those shares i'm just going to i'm just going to get rid of the $50 share Tesla, and I'm just getting rid of the lower basis stock. And so, even though we may be buying and selling, I'm just on an ongoing basis, I'm getting rid of my lower basis stock. And it just Mm -hmm. becomes a much more tax efficient driver because, really, for the most part, most people in ETFs are just paying taxes on what they bought what they sold and then any dividends right so there's just right. there's much fewer many fewer capital gains are paid out in etfs than are in mutual funds so that's why they're more tax efficient that's why they're again for for us if we had a, a standardized recommendation oh hey if you want to be tax efficient you probably want to be in a portfolio of primarily primarily etfs <laughs> because they just tend it just tends to be a more tax efficient vehicle for you
1: especially someone who has sizable dollars in a non-retirement account like from right. an inheritance or sale of a property or something like that if you're talking but hundreds of thousands millions yeah. in a non-retirement account it will be using etfs and that type of account will be more uh, yeah, tax efficient or higher income earners that have higher cap gains taxes things like that
0: right there there are a lot and it's a lot of it is just the uncertain like the uncertainty surrounding it and mm-hmm. just not liking surprises if you have a client which we do they, they may have invested a bunch of money in actively managed mutual funds back in the 90s, and they may still hold some of those shares, you can get surprises at the end of the year where you may talk to your advisor and they say, at the beginning of any given year, I have no idea what the year-end capital gains of a given mutual fund are going to be, right? No no clue. I I can probably make a better guess about what we're doing inside of the portfolio as far as our ongoing rebalancing is going, right? Depending on what their situation is, are they investing, are they taking money out? We can make a better guess at the capital gains that we'll generate but we don't know what's happening inside of a mutual fund over the course of a year so we're not so there's a lack of predictability that comes with it that comes with an active fund which again, it may very well be worth it, but it's just people tend not to like, people tend not to like the, oops, $25,000 a year in taxes this year if you have a big portfolio because a bunch of funds, you're paid out capital gains. No, it's great because you made a bunch of money in those right. funds over the years. Right. It is appreciation. But When you go from one year where you have a tiny little, not much in the way of cap gains and then the next year it's triple or quadruple, it's just, a, it's not a very pleasant experience. I guess. You know
1: who, who doesn't like it? CPAs. Do they? <laughs> No. have like a yeah. year where significant capital gains in a portfolio is compared to prior year. And then the CPA has to deliver the bad news to the client that's regarding right. your taxes went up this year. And here's the reason. That's right. Yeah. And, and you yes.
0: can, you might yeah. under withhold, you, you could under with, if you have a big tax bill, they may say, Oh, yeah. you didn't pay enough in taxes. you got a penalty. Yeah. It, it can get a little yeah. messy. And yes, yeah, certainly that's right. <laughs> The cpa who's uh, the messenger who's regularly being yes. on this one is are generally not too happy exactly. so anyway so for tax efficiency mutual fund etfs be handily win the battle against the mutual fund so just keep yeah. that in mind and this it's a great opportunity for you can talk about asset location right and where what you know where do you hold what investment right there there are different tax characteristics to lots of different types of investments and so you can i'm gonna hold my etf my my large cap ETF in my taxable account. If I want to have an actively managed fund because I really love this manager, I'll hold that one in my IRA. That's the kind of decision that you can make. And just yep. try to put your, put whatever you want to own in the most tax efficient place. Yep. We good on ETF. We only have 18 more minutes and I got a yeah. majority of my list. Here. We're
1: not going to get to all these. So what do you think is the most? Maybe I put variable annuities in our outline, but I think we could do a whole show on variable annuities. Yeah. So I think time save that thoughts, one because I could think. literally go on for two hours on that one. We'll I think schedule most a whole of my show. outline
0: is like percentage wise is mostly your variable annuity thought.
1: <laughs> I just kept going and going <laughs> and it'll be even worse when you get me talking talking about it, but we'll
0: punt that one. Um, yeah. But what
1: about, I don't know, REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust? I think that would be a good one to to go yeah. over unless you uh, have a preference for something else.
0: Let me do quickly. So an ETN is an exchange traded note. It, it, just, okay. I'll mention it just because it looks very similar to an ETF. Although I, you just do want to be careful what you're buying, right? It, just because something is has a three-letter ticker and trades intraday doesn't necessarily mean that it's an ETF. An ETN is exchange traded note. It's, a, it's like a synthetic product that's issued by say a, an investment bank or a bank and it may it will track an index and it'll it should behave like the index but you have like the extra layer of if this investment bank isn't around at the end of this then you know i have another risk associated with the fact that maybe the investment underlying investment asset class that i bought does well but if my bank is not there at the end in theory that's just another risk level again they're generally issued by the big bank. so there's they don't usually go out of business but it's not as we saw in the financial crisis it's mm, not it out of the realm of possibility for a big bank to go under but you just they're not again they're not all that popular but they and they will tend to invest in things like things that aren't as commonly aren't as easy to index in an etf right master limited partnerships which i'll touch on maybe at the end of this but just be careful on that there there is an exchange traded fund It does look a lot like an exchange-traded note, but they tend to be some differences in there that you just want to be aware of.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. I'll roll right past that one. I'll spend a bit of time on a closed-end fund.
1: Okay.
0: A closed-end fund is, I guess it's like similar to an actively managed mutual fund crossed with with an exchange-traded fund, right? So a closed-end fund, the closed-end refers to the fact that it's a set number of shares, Right. It's so it starts, and a manager says, I'm gonna raise fifty million dollars and I'm gonna put together a portfolio of whatever dividend yeah. paying stocks, preferred stocks, convertible bonds, and I'm gonna manage that portfolio, and it's gonna be a set size, and there's no new shares, and it's gonna trade on an exchange, and people can buy it and sell it, but it's not gonna be changing. Like I'm, I'm one of the if you were making a if you were doing a commercial for a closed-end fund it would be hey yeah you get this uh, we'll use fidelity contra fund i think bill danoff still manages the fidelity contra fund he's great right how many great ideas does he really have he may have looked this bill danoff he may have looked super, super smart when when he was managing 25 billion dollars but what about it what if he's managing 200 billion dollars right so mutual funds that are popular that do well which the contra fund certainly has over a lot of years tend to gather assets And then the question is, well, do we have a, do you have that many good ideas? It's a lot easier to manage a smaller pool of money than is a larger one, because in order to continue the same performance, you have to be able to find more ideas. And once you decide on a stock, if you want to buy it for your portfolio, it's different. Buying $5 million of a stock is a lot different than buying $50 million of a stock. It's just size kind of works against you when you're managing a, when you're managing money. So a closed end fund is a set, is a set pool of capital. Again, I'm I just to be clear. I'm not doing a commercial for closed-end funds. It we, sounds like we are. don't use them. We no. don't use them, but <laughs> we don't. Yeah. The da- the opposite of the downside would be you. Te- you don't get cost economies of scale either, right? So as funds get larger, they tend to get less expensive, and then it will trade on an exchange on an ongoing basis. For the most part, most people who are investing in in closed-end funds are tend to trying are tend to try to pick them up when they're at a discount, right? So you have your underlying stocks, and for whatever reason, supply and demand may push up the value of the net may push the value of the fund over the net asset value of the underlying holdings or under if if for whatever reason people don't think the manager's any good anymore and he's he or she's doing a terrible job the stocks may be worth 300 million dollars but the fund may be worth all the shares of the fund may be worth 280 million and there's so it's an implicit discount Mm
1: -hmm. in
0: the the share price to the underlying securities most people who are doing closed-end funds are trying to pick them up at a discount and wait for that discount to go away. That's, I think, that's the most common use that I've seen in them. Mm-hmm. Again, very small market. It's not. It's only a three hundred nine billion dollar market. So maybe I've gone on too long already.
1: That's <laughs> uh, okay. You're excited but, about it.
0: <laughs> this is bringing uh, me
1: back to my Series Seven days, I think. I
0: know.
1: <laughs> or is yeah, or th- is it my CFP yeah. days, or maybe both?
0: I both. think they used yeah. to be more popular than they are now i think they were probably you know, at least relative to the kind of the rest of the marketplace closed-end funds used to be a are bit they, bigger of a deal at higher
1: cost than an open-end fund in general with, i don't
0: Management know that cost, but I would, I would assume right because yeah. you do get to with an open-end fund you get the economies of scale whereas you're basically set in stone the the original pool of capital never changes if you're a good mutual fund manager and you start your fund with 100 million dollars but ten years later it's a hundred billion dollars. You probably gonna you're probably gonna have a lower cost vehicle because you have so much more money to spread out. And the cheaper your fund gets, the more assets it tends to grab just because of the way the marketplace works. Mm-hmm. So I would guess like guess that they're more expensive, but again, that's not something I know. It's not a it's not a market that I cover closely otherwise, other than yeah. just you know, from the good old days of studying and reading and all that stuff. They come up on occasion, but it's
1: I don't think I've ever come, come across up. one in a in someone's portfolio. Yeah.
0: Well, I, a lot of them will just look like yeah or maybe I, I just don't they, know if I rare. have they're pretty rare yeah I yeah. think they, they, they a lot of them look like ETFs in, the okay. in similar ways but it's not they're definitely different all right we should talk we should definitely get to REITs and maybe that'll yeah. be yeah we'll skip here I think REITs is a
1: good one a lot of people a lot of people want to invest in real estate Right and not always feasible for someone to invest in an actual tangible piece of real estate just because of the cost limitations and the work involved in investment properties and things like that. But yep. a lot of people are attracted to investing in real estate because there were lots of periods of time it, real estate has done well, and REITs give people that opportunity. So yeah, I think that's a good one to get into.
0: Yeah, all right. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the. I have some bullet points here. There, there's a there's a list of criteria. So REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. So that's what it that stands for. So it's generally speaking, a real estate investment. And I'm just going to have, a, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of criteria that you have to fulfill in order to be treated as a REIT. And so I am just going to read those off here. So you must invest at least 75% of the total assets in real estate cash or US treasuries.
1: Oh, interesting. I think it's probably
0: just, that's probably just to, if you're waiting to deploy some yeah. capital, right? yeah. it doesn't always have to be all in real estate, but you have to stash it some. Yes, yeah. You must derive at least 75% of your gross income from rents, interest on mortgages that finance real property or real estate sales.
1: Ah, um, so
0: again, you can like, uh, a REIT can <clears throat> own property. It can also... Lend, essentially like a mortgage REIT on the mortgages that are used to finance real mm-hmm. estate, which is would be different markets and obviously different return characteristics and risks. You must pay a minimum of 90% of taxable income in the form of shareholder dividends each year. This is the one that if you know anything about REITs, you probably know this one. Essentially, it's they're like income vehicles and you have to, the organizers of the REIT can't just keep all the money from themselves. They have to pay out a certain amount of it Every year, in order to qualify for like the, for the tax advantages of being yeah. elite, okay, okay. Um, be an entity that is taxable as a corporation. That's the boring one. Board of directors and trustees, and have no yeah, have hundred shareholders, and the no more than fifty percent of its shareholders can be. I'm sorry, fifty percent of the shares can't be held by five or fewer individuals. So they're basically it's like a it's like a big real estate investment vehicle, and and again, it's to be clear, mo- most Reits are publicly traded. I think most reits are publicly traded, and while you may own individual real estate in the REIT, but you don't get the one of the benefits of owning real estate is that you don't watch the price every day, right? There's I mean there's very really right. bad things to watching the All price, right. but if you own a two-family somewhere you're you don't get a daily report of oh your two family is up is up one percent today and it's down two percent the next day you do lose that piece of the real estate investment you don't have to watch the volatility because again most of these are there are privately held REITs but most of them are publicly traded
1: there must be a decent Uh, market cap on this one for REITs. Did you yeah, look into that one? I didn't look
0: it up. Oh, yeah, yeah, Google it while we're talking. Again, it's certainly a way to access real estate. The There are some tax advantages to it that are qualified by the fact that they have to pay out. and You avoid the whole double taxation piece of a corporation if you pay out a certain amount of, if you pay up that 90% plus of the income to your shareholders. And it's, again, it's different on the unfortunate part about it is it's I think a, a a real estate investor who's investing in actual properties here and there would probably I don't again I don't know this but probably would would maybe look down on a REIT just because again you tend to get the same supply and demand relationships when the market falls and people just decide that they don't want to be invested in anything you tend to get more correlation with the stock market inside of a REIT than maybe with other types of real estate you know what I mean it's, yeah you, there's certainly portfolio diversifiers but there are also lots of times when there are, is fairly high correlation with stocks and so you don't get maybe the maybe necessarily the benefits of just owning an actual of an owning an actual property that's not fluctuating and no no one's selling share if you own a two family somewhere or if you're in an office building no one is shelling shares of your office building when the market's dropping and so right. you you don't really. You don't have to worry about that same volatility. That your office building may not be decreasing in price. It's just the psychological impact of it is not the same,
1: All right? Like um, the REIT market is something like one to two billion.
0: Yeah, so so, again, it's so not
1: decent size. Yeah, yeah,
0: but certainly not huge. But it's again, it's. A lot of portfolios will have a if you look at a diversified long term investment portfolio that was designed by a computer that that's taking into account all the all the risk return characteristics of all of a bunch of different asset classes and in future projections on rates of return. You will usually see a read allocation there, although it tends to be fairly small. Right, it yeah. tends to be like five percent or less is usually what you'll see as far as the standard read allocation. So they help a little bit, but it's not. It's not a huge asset. It's not like you, if you don't own any REITs in your portfolio, you need to run out and get them. But anyway, okay, is that good enough on REITs?
1: I think that's great on REITs. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some of our portfolios have allocations to REITs, but you're right. I th- about five percent, even the most aggressive strategies, I believe. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and I think it's usually yeah the five percent cap. I'm you know using our some of we have some portfolios that are that are very broadly diversified, and I think five percent is the number in the equity side, right? So they're yeah. more obviously more equity like than bond like, and but yeah, you get like a five percent weighting ish, and then it tends to drop as you add fixed income exposure so some of the portfolios is just a few percent here or there so it's not a major investment holding it's not if you don't have your large cap u.s stock fund and you live here in the u.s you probably i might say you probably should have some exposure there yeah quite the the same same thing with REITs. Mm. all right what else do I have? Should I get to my? actually I get to master limited partnerships? Again, these are now we're into stuff that we. Ooh,
1: you've got three and a half minutes.
0: Three, three and a half minutes. I think I so could probably pick do that. Continuities. What's
1: your favorite one?
0: I don't know. Structured products. Should I do? No, we'll do master limited partnerships since okay. since I brought it up. Called MLPs. Again, these had their these. This is something else that you might say, oh, I may have heard of that, that they all have their moment in the sun. I guess they're, they're similar to REIT in that it's like it's organized as, as a publicly traded partner and does have it does have some 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 benefits, some tax benefits that are fairly unique. A master limited partnership invests in, you see them in like oil and gas and natural resources. Oh, yeah. So it's like similar to how REIT is to real estate. It's, and again, that's there might be some real investors who have an issue with this, but it's like an MLP is like a read for the kind of the natural resources sector, right? If you're if you want to build a gas pipeline, you might set it, or a company that administers pipelines for for oil and gas that might be set up as a master limited partnership where people can put their money together and invest in that marketplace. Oops, I just hit my printer. You and it, there's some again, it's there are tax advantages to it where there's actual ongoing income to them. But a lot of that income is treated as return of principal, and so they tend to be very tax efficient. Oh, they're sort of like kind of sodgy. And again, it's not a huge marketplace, and it's not all that ver- all that well known. But it's it's it has a tax advantage piece that that a lot of people do. And you're generally not having a, It's not a lot of growth. You're not expecting. You're if you build a pipeline, and then you administer it. It's not it's not like trying to trying to find a cure for cure for the next the next horrible disease, and which is going to have a huge market share, right? You're just basically going to build the pipeline, administer it, and charge fees as it go through. So they're kind of incoming securities that have a okay. that have a tax advantage aspect to them where you're mostly taking back return of capital until the end when you sell it and more of a
1: stable it. type yeah. asset yeah like but, in but again yeah
0: yeah yeah that, that's how they're that's how they're explaining and sold although like anything else when the markets get in and when you get just like a like bitcoin's extreme example but there was a time when everyone decided that master limited partnerships were great and a bunch of people rushed into them the prices went way high and then they they came crashing back down to earth that's just that's that's publicly traded can be the supply and demand can push it up and hurt your return help or hurt your return depending on when you personally bought in but the yeah, the kind of stodgy income type investments and not all that exciting except when the markets decided they're great or terrible
1: yeah hey i forgot to give you the two-minute warning we only have about 25 oh. seconds so <laughs> time to wrap up right. hey we, we got some match the partnership stuff. so yeah fantastic. yeah i can't we'll, believe we got we'll that do annuities
0: next time we'll
1: do two hours on annuities but yeah, that'll be an yeah. exciting one there's a lot to talk about there all
0: right well have a great holiday everybody this is uh, my name is justin mcnamara alongside Alyssa mcnamara reed uh, you can check us out at mcnamarafinancial.com or for those those of you up north of Boston, check out our podcast, at McNamara on Money. There is my timer, which means that we need to go.
1: All right. Have a great holiday. Happy holidays. Bye bye. Take care. Bye.